The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. And by Field Notes Brand, makers of American memo books and more, now featuring county fair editions, one for each state in the United States of America. Field Notes Brand. I'm not writing it down to remember it later. I'm writing it down to remember it now. Online at fieldnotesbrand.com. Coverage of the world of comedy on The Sound of Young America is supported by Humber College, offering a two-year program dedicated to comedy. Students learn stand-up, improv, acting, and writing skills, and perform in the heart of Toronto. At Humber, we make funny people funnier. More information at humbercomedy.com. I'm Jesse Thorne. Live on tape from my house in Los Angeles, it's The Sound of Young America from MaximumFun.org and PRI, Public Radio International. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. This week on this show, we're looking at different versions of the future, the past, and the present. My guest, the writer William Gibson, has long been heralded for his ability to imagine the future. He created the idea of cyberspace, among other things. Lately, though, his science fiction hasn't been taking place in the world of tomorrow. It's been taking place in the world of today. It's still classic science fiction in a lot of ways, but rather than creating a new kind of laser beam or some other technological marvel, he looks at the way technology is shaping our lives and then abstracts it ever so slightly into the world of ideas. His newest book is about intellectual property, fashion, style, and the idea of authenticity, and how it's all connected together by our new social communications means. If that sounds a bit confusing, well, we'll, we'll get into it in just a minute. Um, William Gibson, welcome to The Sound of Young America. Oh, thank you, Jesse. I'm glad to be here. So I can't help but notice as you sit, uh, as you sit in the highly authentic guest chair of The Sound of Young America that my uh, great-uncle Phil made, um, that you're wearing a chambray work shirt, which is very much au courant, um, and it's very much au courant in a very specific mode, which is this recreation of mid-20th century work clothing um, that is, you know, quite a thing. Was that an interest of yours? Was that something that you, like, got into? Well, I like to think I'm... You know, I like to think I'm I'm wearing it because context is everything, and uh, I would have been I would have been wearing actually I I definitely would have been wearing exactly the the same shirt in nineteen nineteen sixty seven except that the one I w- w- was wearing in nineteen sixty seven was made in the United States uh, manufacturer suggested retail was two dollars. And this one was made in in Tokyo, and fortunately, I didn't have to pay the manufacturer's suggested retail. But it's like a a museum-grade, insanely accurate reproduction of something America used to turn out for about 20 cents per unit. It's a really interesting thing. I mean, I... um... I I run this men's style blog and, uh, you know, we have a contact email address and sometimes we'll run quotes. And I think probably every other month someone will send me a description of a, a, 
a Buzz Rickson uh, bomber jacket that you that that appeared in one of your novels. Buzz Rickson is a brand that um, it's a Japanese brand that that recreates um, again in this sort of like uh, obsessive archival uh, way mid-century military clothing. When did you when did you first become a- aware of this whole world? My inter- actually my interest in this sort of thing long predates my my writing career and i i was i was fascinated by military surplus stores and sort of by the ruins of of post-war america even even as a, a little kid and i would spend hours hanging out in the local local army navy store sort of reverse engineering history out of this stuff I was handling, and I became quite fond of a lot of a lot of the stuff which around that time was starting to be repurposed and recontextualized as as counterculture wear and of course it found its way from the counterculture into the the sort of the primary design codes of the 21st century streetwear. Let's talk about the way that um the way that our relationship to that kind of stuff changed in the um especially in the 70s and 80s as the first world basically stopped having the capacity to make this kind of stuff. Um I mean, almost completely. You write in the book about uh, about military contracting being the one thing yeah. that, w- because military contractors are sometimes re- are often required to make stuff in the United States. Well, legally, they're required to make like what's clothing in, in under American law. They're required to have absolutely everything made in in the United States. If that weren't the case, all of our stuff would be being made in China and Vietnam. It creates kind of a crisis. People, when people realize that while we can create intellectual property, we're almost incapable of creating something physical. Yeah, it's we we abdicated, and I think the the symbol. I was doing I was doing a radio show in Portland a couple of days ago, and. I I was talking I was we'd been talking about I was talking about this with the host and I told the story of how the American denim manufacturers the people who made the fabrics the textile manufacturers not the people who made jeans out of the fabric the textile manufacturers had in the early 70s gone to very very wide automated denim looms that would produce a passable denim much more cheaply, but it wasn't nearly as good as the stuff that had been made on on the old narrow looms, which dated from the 1900s. They tossed the old narrow looms out into the parking lot, and, and these little Japanese guys came and said, may we buy those? May we take them away? And please, you know, please take them away. And 
They took them away and had them rebuilt by watchmakers, uh, completely refurbished, and they learned to use them. And the Japanese can now manufacture the only traditional American denim in the world. And it's been a really lucrative, it's a, it still is a very lucrative business, business for them. And then we were in the collar section, and a woman called and, and talked about having grown up in a, in a textile town and watching the old looms rust in the parking lot. And she said, I always felt there was something terribly wrong about that. But now that I hear the story, I understand what it was. Zero History, which is your new book, and by the way, my guest is uh, the author William Gibson, um, is a very sort of uh, is a very sort of globe trotting international uh, book, um, and um, you know you you yourself are an expat. You know you live in Canada despite being American. Um, how is the relationship? with that particular ideal of Americana and American manufacturing different for somebody who, for the people who bought the looms and live in Japan relative to, um, you know, say the folks who, you know, work at Cone Denim in North Carolina or, you know, the folks who are making making jeans on, you know, 19th century sewing machines in, in Pasadena, you know, 15 yeah. miles from here. I don't know. That's a good. That's a good question. I mean, I would have to go and and hang with the people at Cone Mills and and the people in Pasadena to really be able to you know formulate any sort of an informed answer. Although I'd happily do that if the opportunity <laughs> presented itself, because both those, both those things. Both those things really interest me. The reason, uh, you know, as far as the, the book being very globe-trotting and, and multinational, I, I think that's really just naturalism. The world in which these, these plots are hatched is not really like an American world. The world in which the market lives is... is not an an American world. America is really good. At, does the branding and and the crowdsourcing and gets gets the stuff, but the biz happens simultaneously everywhere. And the people who are closest to the biz tend to be almost simultaneously everywhere as as part of the job description. The Sound of Young America returns triumphantly to New York City on October 22nd at the Jerome L. Green Performance Space at WNYC. Join me, Jesse Thorne, my guests, including the brilliant Amy Sedaris and more, for a night of fun and laughter and good times and, I don't know, maybe some intellectual stimulation. We'll see. You can find more information about the show by visiting MaximumFun.org and clicking on our Live in New York City link in the right-hand bar. It's the Sound of Young America. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the acclaimed science fiction writer William Gibson. His most recent science fiction novels have largely taken place in the present, 
without any crazy science fiction conceits. Instead, he explores the forces that are changing our world right now. His latest book about fashion, style, authenticity, intellectual property, and a good bit of, you know, violent, exciting intrigue is called Zero History. One of the main characters in this book is this guy called Big End, um, who is uh, who is a very 21st century marketing guy. Um, he's he's the kind of guy that um, is in, is willing to get involved in espionage in order to create in order to find something authentic to make it a piece of a car commercial. Yeah. What's appealing to you about this character? What, why is he interesting to write about? He's a character that, you, that you've brought back now for, if I'm not mistaken, the third book. Yeah. He became the mouthpiece for something. I'm not sure exactly what. When I introduced him in, in pattern recognition, I expected him to be an occasional walk-on who was basically there to give the protagonist of pattern recognition a quest to go on to find a particular MacGuffin that he was after and to give her uh, an American Express card to cover whatever expenses. And I thought he'd pop in occasionally to crank up the pressure, but that was that was about it. And as soon as I put him in, as soon as I let him let him on stage, he he started spouting this kind of crazy quasi situationist <laughs> marketing philosophy that just came out of just sort of came out of nowhere. And I thought, well, where did we get you know where did casting find this guy? And he he sort of by the end of that book he was like on his way to becoming a, a sort of quasi comic bond villain type a character like big end is very difficult for the writer to get get rid of because he'll do anything part of his character is that he will do or commit anything simply in order to gratify a passing whim of curiosity. That means he's like he's like a 50-gallon barrel of plot thickener right there when you need it. If the plot needs to be thickened, big ends down for a jack move, and the plot thickens instantly. I could say that he's, he's slightly based on, as I, I once worked with the late Malcolm McLaren briefly, in Hollywood on a, on on yet another abortive film project and years later when I heard that McLaren had been hired however briefly to be the design czar of either Poland or Hungary I can't remember which <laughs> I thought wow we are seriously in the 21st century now and <laughs> It seems like one of the big things that's creepy about him is the way that he is, the way that he is, um, his sort of weird disconnects and the fact that he's grown extraordinarily rich and successful through that kind of disconnect, not through like a lust for money and empire building or whatever. That feels like a very 21st century kind of contemporary thing. Yeah, it. Um, I I agree. I, I like the your use of disconnects in that. 
in that context because it's extremely 21st century to think of one's disconnects as advantages and property. What, what have you got to offer the company? My disconnects? <laughs> like, that, that wouldn't have flown in the 20th century. You you have these two um, these two characters who are acting as sort of detectives on behalf of Big End in the book, and they each have their own disconnects uh, of of a kind. Let's start by talking about this character Hollis, who um, she seems like a very um, she seems like a, a very much a product of the nineteen nineties, you know, and and the idea that we could. Uh, that if you were an artist, you could make something that was like independent and artistic and free from the machine and, and the sort of difficulties of moving that ideology into the 21st century. Yeah. She probably represents for me the, uh, the actual position of a lot of the artists I know and have have known vis-a-vis the the world and the economy and and how things how things work and often the pe- people who artists who have the best lives aren't aren't artists who be, who sold out biggest and often they aren't artists who refuse to sell out at all. I find most often they're the artists who, who, who sold, but not entirely out, and did it very, did it quite consciously, and selectively. And and that isn't uh, kind of that isn't part of our cultural mythology of what it what it is to be an artist. The disconnect of your um, other main character, um, Milgram, is a literal one. Um, he's had this period of horrible addiction and then subsequent sort of uh, weird uh, high-class, high-tech, dissociative treatment for that addiction in, in Basel, Switzerland. Um, that has basically led to him not understanding, not under oh, seeing the world from an outsider's perspective, yes. um, and especially seeing you know technology from an outsider's perspective. Um, it must be interesting as a science fiction writer to get to write essentially science fiction about the present um, by by having this character who's. Uh, who's hasn't participated in the world for fifteen or twenty years? Yeah, although it it is, it's it's delightful, but it's not unprecedented. The the fifties uh, version of this or the sixties version of this, the, he Milgram would have been a, a time traveler from the past, and in the eighteen nineties version of this, he would have been found thawed, found frozen in an iceberg and thawed, and he would have come forth to like discover the the wonders of of the electric telephone and yeah, well, sure, I mean it would have been it would have been the Brendan Fraser movie blast from the past, yeah, or possibly that one episode of out of this world where 
uh, Evie uses her magic space powers to uh, create Abraham Lincoln, so she gets an A on her science project. I mean, yeah. her American history project. Yes. Yeah, it's very similar. Very similar modality. Why? Why do you? Why have you chosen recently to do that? Um, to write about now from that um, outsider's perspective rather than to use now to extrapolate in, into some kind of future that you can write about from that perspective? Well, having, you know, having arrived in the 21st century via the only, only time machine that any of us have, you know, the, very, <laughs> the very slow one that causes you to get much older as, as you're arriving... I you know I look out the wi- I look out the window and and see science fiction, you know I, I look out the window and from my point of view it's a it's a totally wildly science fictional now out there and here I am I've I've arrived with my, the the traditional science fiction writer's toolkit, which I was issued about about 1981 and I know that. In, in that toolkit, there are oven mitts with which I could, could grasp the steaming mess that is the 2010 present and interrogate it. Like, I've got the tools. I've got tools that, that uh, tr- mainstream novelists wouldn't necessarily have. And the material is is science fiction, so of course I wanted to give it a try, and I've actually been pretty satisfied with with the res- with the results. This is a, a difficult time for literary naturalism. It's very difficult to describe describe the world we live in and the underpinnings of of that world without moving into territory that even 20 even 20 or 10 years ago would have absolutely put your work in in the realm of science fiction we're running so many science fiction scenarios simultaneously in the real world today that if you if you, back in back in 1980, if I'd walked into a publisher publisher's office and said I I, I want to write a science fiction novel about a world in in which we've discovered that in ter- the internal combustion engines we've been using all these years have, have put the climate out of whack, and they go well, oh, kind of abstract, but you know you might be able to do something with it, and I'd say. And simultaneously, there's this this global plague of this sexually communicable disease that destroys the human immune system. Millions and millions of people have it, and it's still we can sort of put it in remission after 20 years of research, but it's still basically incurable. And they go, well, that's a little complicated. You've already got this, what you call global warming scenario, and then you have this AIDS scenario. And my list would just, you know, go on and on. And they'd never give me a contract to write write that novel. It would just be 
un, you know, unwritable and probably unreadable, even though it, it would be, in the end, a very exact description of the world that we live in today. Well, William Gibson, thank you so much for uh, taking all this time to be on The Sound of Young America. Well, thank you. It's been a pleasure. William Gibson's latest novel of contemporary speculative fiction is called Zero History. That's our time for another Sound of Young America show. I have been your host, Jesse Thorne, America's radio sweetheart. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our theme music and all of our music provided by Dan Wally. Our associate producer is Julia Smith. Our editor in Chicago is Nick White. And our new intern is Leo Portugal. Welcome, Leo. If you have thoughts about the show, you can always email me. My actual email address that I just used, it's the one my mom emails me at, is jesse at MaximumFun.org. I hope you'll join us online at MaximumFun.org to talk about this week's show and to check out our other shows like the comedy shows Jordan, Jesse, Go and Stop Podcasting Yourself, the Casper Hauser Comedy Podcast, the Coil and Sharp Podcast, and lots of other great stuff on our blog and site. All online, MaximumFun.org. We'll see you next time right here on The Sound of Young America. The Sound of Young America is supported in part by Ask Metafilter. Thousands of life's little questions answered online at ask.metafilter.com. And by Field Notes Brand, makers of American memo books and more, now featuring county fair editions, one for each state in the United States of America. Field Notes Brand. I'm not writing it down to remember it later. I'm writing it down to remember it now. Online at fieldnotesbrand.com. Coverage of the world of comedy on The Sound of Young America is supported by Humber College, offering a two-year program dedicated to comedy. Students learn stand-up, improv, acting, and writing skills, and perform in the heart of Toronto. At Humber, we make funny people funnier. More information at humbercomedy.com.